بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم والحمد لله رب العالمين الله أكبر العلي العظيم سبحان الله سبحان الملك والملكوت سبحان ذي العرش العظيم سبحان الحي الذي لا يموت سبحان سبحان القدوس رب الملائكة والروح سبحان ربي الأعلى سبحان ذي الجبروت والملكوت سبحانه ونصلي ونسلم ونبارك على محمد النبي الأمين المرسل رحمة للعالمين وعلى آله وأصحابه وعلى من اتبعوا بإحسان إلى يوم الدين Inshallah, this Jum'ah we will talk about something that surrounds all of us a reality that we should come to terms with and understand through the lens of the light that Allah has given to us. Islam should be the most important thing in the life of a Muslim. Islam should be the very framework through which a Muslim sees the world and understands the world. And this is precisely why it is critical that a Muslim has a clear vision of what Islam represents to them. And also a clear understanding of the moral role of the Islamic faith in the context of human history. We all lived through a very interesting part or in very interesting periods and epochs in human history. We saw the fall of communism we saw the rise of democracy in many countries around the world. We saw movements after the fall of communism where people 
assert the right to self-determination and the right to self-determination is putting aside all the sophisticated theories of whether self-determination has an umbilical relationship with liberalism or some other um, philosophy, uh, social and political philosophy. At the core, the movement that we all lived through, or at least those of us who are middle-aged or um, were conscious during the 80s and 90s was an augmented sense that human beings had of their own dignity and the imperative of individual dignity. But we also live through the periods of resistance to the rise of self-determination and resistance to concepts of human dignity. In other words, this resistance takes the form of various dictatorial, authoritarian, totalitarian ways of thinking that struggle to assert themselves in order to prevent people from asserting their right to self-determination and dignity. Sometimes the battle is so unequal, as we saw, for instance, in Russia, where authoritarianism returns, or as we saw in Palestine, where there are people that are under occupation, and so Palestinians in one form or another ended up with authoritarian systems of governance and their movement for self-determination and dignity was frustrated. We saw that also in China, where a nascent movement towards greater freedom and dignity was frustrated through sheer brute power and force. What is critical to understand here is that this is the way history works. And it is critical that we understand the way the movement of history itself. Through a universal international momentum, we saw, for instance, the movement against slavery. This was long before our time. It sparked the American Civil War. 
It sparked numerous political struggles all over Europe. It was a key ideological trope that was often used by colonial powers. So there are numerous nuances and permutations, but the core idea is that all over the world, slavery as an institution lost its legitimacy and credibility. And the entire world moved against racism, against slavery as an institution. But rest assured, in the same way that there was a movement against slavery, there was also a reactionary movement that attempted to preserve slavery in its various forms, whether through Jim Crow laws in the United States or various movements that are now forgotten in Europe or various reactionary conservative institutions around the world that opposed the epistemological, the moral, the theological change that would end legitimacy, the legitimacy and the uh, authenticity of slavery as an institution. There was, if you will, there's a historical movement that arose against slavery and, and with considerable resistance that ended up with at least an official abolition of slavery. Then there was a momentum, human momentum, towards fascism and communism with various movements of resistance towards the rise of fascism, which ended up with the official, at least official, defeat of fascism. The point here is that that is the nature of human history. Ideas catch on like the spread of fire. And human ideas become like a living organism. It is breathed by people and forms a part of the consciousness and awareness of people. And for every idea that catches on like fire, there is a movement of resistance to it. But ultimately, ultimately, it is very difficult to repress the movement of history. Now, why do I say this? Our current problems with racism our current problems with racism in the United States and even around the world is intimately connected 
with the historical movement that once rejected slavery, and also the historical movement that once resisted slavery, our current problems with police authority and police brutality is intimately connected to the revolutionary momentum that called for human dignity and human autonomy and self-determination and also the resistance to these movements of human dignity and human autonomy and self-determination. Our current problems with slavery is but a continuation of a long human saga between despotism despotism, control, and, if you will, liberation. In Quranic language, it is the constant saga between the mustadafin, the oppressed, the those who are demeaned and controlled and oppressed on earth, and their natural inclination to resist their oppression, and the equally natural process, natural meaning that it occurs as, 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 as if it is law, written in the laws of nature, the natural process by which every move, movement that resists oppression you have a counter-movement that resists the resistance to oppression. It's a very old story. Human beings oppress other human beings often for deeply for although understandable, but for inescapable moral flaws within. It is completely unrealistic to expect that at any age that that problem of human oppression towards other human beings will end. It won't. Human beings will always oppress human beings. And it is completely unrealistic to expect that human beings will ever simply concede and accept a fair and just distribution of resources or live at peace with the idea of full individual rights and human autonomy and human dignity. It is the nature of history, the nature of the way that societies are, and the way that human psychology is made, is that there will always be oppressed people. 
But there will always be resistance to oppression. And there will always be resistance to the resistance to oppression. In this dynamic, there are momentums that catch on and that move humanity a step or two forward, like the end of slavery, like the movement against racism, like the movement against colonialism, like the movement, international universal movement, that rejected the idea of foreign domination and foreign occupation. But you don't have to be a professor of history to immediately notice that for every movement of oppression, there is always resistance and there is always slow, incremental, and unequal progress. Slavery was formally abolished, but it continued to exist in many forms. Fascism was officially abolished, but it continued to exist in many forms. Communism was officially ended. It fell in most parts of the world, but it continued to exist in variety of forms. Now, the battle that we all witness is a battle, a recurring, an, an, an old yet new battle with racism. Here is where a critical understanding and anchoring of what Islam is, is essential. When Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala tells us that Allah has sent this message to, to take you out of darkness to light. What does that mean in terms of the way that human beings live their life around the globe and the attitude of a Muslim towards what unfolds and the movement of history around the globe. I'll take you a step back to reflect upon small but at the same time monumental events. It is often reflecting upon these micro-events in human history, in, in Muslim history, that speak the loudest and that are most revealing. When the Prophet sent the Hayya Kalbi. The Hayya Kalbi was one of the companions of the Prophet, one of the Sahaba. 
And he sent Tahiyya al-Kalbi with a message to the king of the Ghassasina, the king of the Christian Arabs who were allied to the Byzantine Empire. The, the Ghassasina were Christian Arabs that were an extension of the Byzantine Empire. And the Prophet sends the Hayya Kalbi with a message inviting the king of the Ghassasina to Islam. What is quite remarkable is that this is the first time that Dahiyya al-Kalbi had traveled to a royal court. Dahiyya al-Kalbi had not been to the Abyssinian royal court like earlier Muslims who migrated from Mecca to Abyssinia to escape persecution. And Dahiyya al-Kalbi, this was effectively his first diplomatic mission. He had never been a diplomat before. And the Muslim nation itself was so inexperienced with diplomacy that when the Prophet ﷺ was sending this message, he didn't have an official seal to stamp the message with. And Muslims had to manufacture a new seal, a seal for the Prophet ﷺ, because Muslims learned that the Byzantine court will not read any message from a foreign dignitary unless it has an official stamp. So that's the level of simplicity and, and uh, if you want to call it, simplicity and naturalness and inexperience. When the Hayat Kalbi travels to the assassinate court, he goes, he, he asks the people at the court, okay, well, I have a message from the Prophet Muhammad but I've never been on a diplomatic mission before what am I supposed to do to present my message to the king? And of course, they give him an, a whole set of instructions. When you go in, you put it in front of the king, and then you take a couple of steps back, and you, you don't hand it over. You don't give it to him hand to hand. You, you stand at a certain distance. And you, uh, you know, all this protocol and etiquette. But one critical part of the protocol is that when, when you first enter into the king's presence, you must prostrate. That's the way we do things in the Byzantine court, and that's the way it's been done for ages. In the Arab Byzantine court, the Ghassasina were an extension of the Byzantine empire because those were Arabs, they were Christian and allies of the Byzantines. I was always struck, Dahiya Kalbi is not one of the famous Sahaba that you hear about all the time. He's not one of those that has tons of stories. But yet, I was always struck by Dahiya Kalbi's response, immediate response. Prostrate before the king, I can't do that. 
when he is told, well, if you don't prostrate, then the king will not receive your message. He says, well, so be it. Then I'll take my message and go back. When he is told, well, if you attempt to present the message without prostrating, there is a possibility that the king will be so insulted that he will have you arrested and possibly killed. Dahiya Kalbi says, well, so be it. If that happens, it happens. My reward is with Allah. Every attempt by fellow Arabs to get Dahiya Kalbi to observe courtly protocol by prostrating before the king failed. And the Hayat Kalbi's response when in, in, in this whole discussion, which lasted for days, by the way, because the, the people at the court were afraid that if, he, if they present him to the king, and he refuses to prostrate, that the king would blame them and punish them. How dare you bring someone who refuses to prostrate in my presence? So they, they, they had long debates about what to do, whether to refuse to let the Hayat Kalbi enter in the king's presence, or whether to take the message from the Hayat Kalbi and present it themselves, and never have the Hayat Kalbis in the king's presence, or you know, the long discussions. But the one constant thing is that the Hayat Kalbi said, I will not prostrate. And he didn't say, I will not prostrate because I am a man of honor or I am a man of dignity. His response was very similar to the response of Muslims who had migrated to the Abyssinian court years earlier, and who also refused similar courtly protocols, although not as extreme. In Islam, we don't do that. This is the Hiyas Kalbi's response. In Islam, we don't do that, because Islam has liberated us from the need to worship other human beings. And when the people at the court told the Hayyad Kalbi, well, you're not worshiping the king, you're just observing protocol. He said, I am sorry. What I understand from my religion is that when I prostrate to Allah, I will prostrate to no other. How did the Hayyad Kalbi Dahiyal Kalbi was not a great theologian, was not a big philosopher, was not a major jurist. How did Dahiyal Kalbi have this innate understanding of what Islam is? To have that type of courage, that type of rectitude, to have that fundamental understanding of what taking people from darkness to light is. 
Take another quick example. One of the statements you hear, you read, repeated throughout the story of the seerah of the Prophet in a variety of events when the companions interact with each other and when they interact with the Prophet in the events surrounding the Battle of Badr, in the events surrounding the Battle of Uhud, in the events surrounding the Battle of Khandaq, in the events surrounding the crisis with Bani Nadir, the Jewish tribe of Bani Nadir, in the events surrounding the Battle of Hunayn, and this is rather striking, is that one of the, the, the constant phrases that you hear the companions say, La we Muslims, it's a subtle expression, but basically living our faith as Muslims, we cannot allow ourselves to be degraded or to be in a, in a humiliated position as if their clear understanding and innate understanding is that Islam was a message of dignity to them. And that being a true Muslim, in order to, is to honor Islam and for Islam to honor them, in order for them to honor Islam and for, the, and for Islam to honor them, is that they had to exist in a dignified existence. That unless they were dignified human beings, that Islam within them would be defeated. Again, you look at these micro elements to understand the truth of things. So let's back, go back to the idea of historical movements. It is clear that the reason that Islam, when it first is the Islam of Muhammad not the, 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 the if you will, the, the grand idea of Islam that goes back to, to Adam. But the Islam of Muhammad it is clear that it struck humanity as a trajectory and a momentum towards liberation and self-determination. And that as a movement towards liberation and self-determination, it met a considerable amount of resistance. Much of this resistance was internal to Islam itself because many people converted to Islam who did not necessarily 
hold any of these pristine ideals. And that contrary to popular belief, it is not true that the first few decades of Islam were decades of liberation and then it was a long winter of authoritarianism and despotism and oppression. In fact, the dynamic between freedom and oppression within Islam ebbs and flows throughout Islamic history. Eventually, the idea of human liberation and self-determination is suffocated in the Muslim East and the Christian West takes the idea and runs with it. This is with the Reformation and the defeat of Catholicism and the Catholic Church and the rise of the Reformation and the, the sort of radically modified church theology of Christianity, the idea of freedom in the Christian West becomes contagious and it propels the rise of the Western civilization. From that comes another huge historical moment with the anti-slavery movement and the movement to abolish slavery ironically championed by the same people who brought colonialism to the world and who shackled the world in the institution of colonialism. By that time, Muslims has ceased to be a civilizational force. By that time, Muslims were simply on the receiving end rather than on the making end of history. The same with the rise of democracy and the resistance to communism and fascism. It was championed by the same civilization that brought a formal end to slavery while Muslims had entered into their long winter and had ceased to become an effective force in the world. And I would submit to you that they had ceased to become an effective force in the world because they had forgotten the simple intuitive knowledge of al-Kalbi, of what it means to be a Muslim, the type of inherent dignity that Islam came to give human beings. We now are living through a similar historical moment. This time in the long battle against racism. Racism is very old and it's an illness that is as old 
as the illness of poverty itself. Racism is intimately tied to the whole dynamic of oppression, dictatorship, unequal distribution of sources, the very idea of classes, domination and hegemony. Racism is the close demonic ally of both slavery and colonialism. In every form of colonialism that we've seen in human history, we've also seen the illness of racism. In every In every manifestation of the demonic illness of oppressive slavery, we've also seen the demonic illness of racism. Racism was clearly identified and recognized by early Islam as an illness, a malady, something intolerable. But Muslims, as I said, have been in a state of slumber for a long time. And so in the same way that they were not at the forefront of the battle against slavery, and in the same way that they have not been at the forefront of the battle against despotism and for democracy, and against communism and fascism in the modern age, Muslims have forgotten that their faith, when it came to say, we've taken you from darkness to light, Allah was giving you the stamp of certification, the right for you to claim human dignity to feel proud and confident as you claim your right to autonomy and your right to self-determination. In the same vein, Allah was giving you the certitude in your rejection of, the, of all blind affiliations like the affiliation of racism. And when the Prophet ﷺ taught his followers, that people are as equal as the teeth of a tomb. There's no difference between an Arab and non-Arab. That pristine type of moral awareness has been in a state of slumber in the Muslim civilization now for a very long time. All of this doesn't change the fact, though. When Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala tells you that Allah blesses you as a nation, what makes Allah bless a nation? or not bless a nation. 
Not because of the amount of oil you have, not because of what you have in your bank account, not even because of how many prayers you do, not because you fast Ramadan well, not because you do dua in Laylatul Qadr, not because you go to Hajj or Umrah, but because of a dynamic. The fact that as a people, you enjoy what is good and you resist what is not good. Now, that is impossible unless you first have an awareness of what good means and what evil means. If you are confused about what's good or not good, then the idea that you're going to enjoin anything or forbid anything is idiotic. The premise upon which makes you a blessed nation in Islam is an awareness of goodness that would precede the actual act of enjoining what is good and, and forbidding what is not good. Precisely like the Hiyya al-Malki, the innate knowledge that Islam came as a liberation, as a message of self-determination, as a message of dignity, as a message of freedom, as a message that condemned racism and oppressive institutions of power, that awareness has to precede any process of enjoining the good and forbidding the evil. The battle today is one that revolves around racism. Again, I underscore this. When the Prophet taught the companions in a hadith that has been reported in many different versions, and some versions are weak, some versions are not. And, and in some other versions, Sultan. What all the versions are saying, what the Prophet taught the companions, the Prophet taught the companions, whoever stands there, Tadada means you, you stand in a state of humility and brokenness. That any person, any Muslim that stands in front of a rich person, broken and humble, you know, where you stand and you say, oh, thank you very much, sir, thank you for helping me, that, that type of thing. That if you stand before a rich person, broken and humble, because you want 
you want to, financial benefits. Or if you stand before a king or someone with authority, broken and humble, that two-thirds of your Islam is wiped away. What the Prophet ﷺ is teaching the companions is dignity. Even if you're poor and you're a Muslim, you cannot be undignified in front of a rich person. Even if you are in the presence of a boss or in the presence of a prince or in the presence of a king, dignity is core to the identity of a Muslim. The same type of teaching that will impel that will compel Muslims to become to spread an entire civilization around the world. Human beings, when they lose their sense of dignity, when they become broken, they lose their creativity, they lose their sense of being, and they cannot produce, they cannot think, they become like animals when they are terrified and scared. They are always cowering, going for shelter. Human beings die in life whenever you take their dignity away. And that is precisely why Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala in the Quran rejects the idea of Muslims who are Muslims coercively. There can be no compulsion in religion. Throughout, when you look at the life and the message in its pristine form, dignity is core. It's core to the identity of a Muslim. The lack of dignity teaches the human heart and human soul hypocrisy. And a hypocrite is a liar. And a liar can never be a good Muslim or a moral human being. Learn this as a, a golden rules. You need dignity because you want to avoid hypocrisy. And you want to avoid hypocrisy because you cannot be a liar. Because if you are a liar, the even the aspiration of existing in light is gone. There can be no light with a dishonest existence. That dignity is what made Muslims at a time when the entire world would have never thought twice about prostrating in front of a king or a prince or a person of or a nobility. It made Muslims the outliers where Muslims were saying, no, our religion taught us that you cannot Forego your dignity because of power and a relationship with power.
This is also precisely why the institution of slavery within Islamic history was very different than the institution of slavery outside of Islamic history. So until we see things like the Mamalik who were slaves and ruled Egypt for centuries and, and so on, and, and many other historical examples like that. So today, we have once again a human movement that rejects racism as fundamentally inconsistent with innate, natural human awareness of what dig human dignity should be. An innate awareness that you cannot be immoral people if you are a racist people. An innate awareness and again, innate meaning that none of the people who go out in these demonstrations and who are resisting racism need to be great philosophers. They know it intuitively. That if you are a society that allows for systemic and institutional racism, it also means that you are an immoral society. That your claims to morality are deceitful and hypocritical. And that if racism exists within your society as a systematic and an institutional reality, that it doesn't affect the members of the minority alone, but it is darkness that descends upon your entire social reality, your entire social being. Put it, put it differently. The innate awareness is that when Floyd is murdered, this one individual is killed the way he is killed. And when the United States, the American people as a people, fail to rise against racism, the darkness that descends upon the nation because of that is total and complete. That you cannot claim to be a nation of light, a nation of freedom, a nation of morality, a nation of justice, a nation of principles, if you allow for racism to exist especially in egregious and unmitigated and, and vulgar forms, as we saw with the murder of a large number of African-Americans. But in the same way that there is a movement against racism, rest assured, in the same way that there was a movement that wanted slavery to survive, a movement that wanted colonialism to survive, a movement that wants fascism to survive, that wants communism to survive, there, will, there is and will always be a movement that is reactionary and that will resist human progress and that will 
by its, these are twisted souls, but they are a reality. They don't want other human beings. They might rebel for their own sense of outrage against their own dignity. So they might have white pride. They might have a class pride. They might have family pride. But they don't want other human beings to enjoy full and equal dignity. So there will always be a movement to resist. To every action, there is a reactionary movement. To every progressive movement, there is always a reactionary movement resisting it. What concerns me here is the position of Muslims in this. There is always a movement towards the light and there is always a movement towards darkness. And I submit to you that throughout history, you will always find a movement that upholds principles that are equal or that when you, you unpack these principles, you find that these principles are pro-human oppression. As there are, there, are always, there are always movements that attempt to resist human oppression. Now the question for you as a Muslim and as a believer is where do you stand? If you were at the time of the Prophet one of the big complaints of the Qurayshis against Muhammad was that he caused our slaves to rebel against us. A pro-human dignity movement and a counter-human dignity movement. Where would you have stood? A common complaint about the early Muslims is that these people are too radical they mix up races and mix up ethnicities and mix up classes. They um, empower the Mawali. Even the Muhammad, the Prophet, among the practices of Arabs is that someone who was a slave in their life, a Mawla, someone who was a slave at one point in their life, cannot ever marry the daughter of nobility. So what does Muhammad do? What does the Prophet ﷺ do? He, make, he marries his son, who is a former slave, Zaid, adopted son, to the daughter of nobility. And when there is outrage, Muhammad ﷺ says, the Prophet ﷺ says, resisting this marriage is jahiliyyah. So there will always be this movement. At the time of the Prophet, there was a movement that was against the privileges of nobility. And there was a counter-reactionary movement that wanted to uphold the privileges of nobility. Where would you have stood? In the same that there was a movement that wanted to abolish slavery, there was also a reactionary movement that wanted to keep slavery. 
If you lived at that time, where would you have stood? More recent history. There was a movement that upheld fascism and defended fascism at many different levels. In Spain, in Italy, in Germany. And there was a movement that rejected fascism as inherently oppressive and as darkness. Where would you have stood? There is a movement that rejects communism as contrary to human dignity because it relies on totalitarian ideologies and authoritarian thought, the dictatorship of the proletariat, and a movement that says even dictatorship by a proletariat, I can't hear myself, so my pronunciation is off. In the same way that there is a movement that defended it, there is a movement that resists the simplicities and extremities of communism. Where would you have? Where would? Where do you stand? In our historical moment, there is a movement that is saying, "Enough with racism." in its various forms and permutations. And there are, rest assured, whether you see them or you don't see them, reactionaries that say, that are comfortable with the darknesses, with the darkness of racism, that want to shelter racism in its various forms, where do you stand? But most critical of all, as Muslims, we have been outside the cycle of history. Our positions as Muslims have not mattered for long enough. This is what is the most problematic is that Muslims have not been on the cusp of moral struggles in human history for too long. And this is where I take you to the final point. Throughout Islam, and this is a long conversation, but I'll, we don't have time to, to demonstrate it with many examples. But there throughout Islam, there has been those who understood Islam as a message of liberation that demands Muslims be at the forefront of moral and ethical struggles. And those who resist that understanding of Islam and want Islam to be nothing 
but a vacuous moral force, an empty moral force, a void, that basically does nothing but legitimate institutions of power as they exist, as they are, to legitimate the status quo. So throughout history, those who understand Islam as a revolutionary doctrine that rejects lethargy and rejects inanity and ineffectiveness, that rejects the void, and those who insist that Islam is nothing more than rituals without revolution. We see the same dynamic in our modern history. Those who want Islam to be nothing more than rituals, but don't see Islam as relevant to any moral struggle or ethical struggle in human history, and those who cannot separate between Islam as a moral and ethical force in human life. The critical question is, where do you stand? Are you with the reactionaries of Islam? Or are you with the revolutionaries of Islam? You will be asked that question in the hereafter. And so it is wise to ask it of yourself. Do you understand what darkness and light when Allah tells you we've sent this message to take you from darkness to light? Do you understand what darkness is? Have you asked yourself that question? What is darkness? What is the nature of darkness? And what is light? And what is the nature of light? And if you have an understanding of darkness and light, do you believe that Islam, in fact, is a vehicle for taking human beings from darkness and light? And the most critical question of all, how? Are you among those who are so mentally lethargic and morally dead that you don't care whether it's dark or light. You just want to do your salah and your salam and be left alone otherwise. And are you going to be able to defend that before Allah and the hereafter? I pray that Allah has helped me communicate what is in my heart to your intellects and heart. Because this is one of the most critical issues that we as Muslims have confronted and will continue to confront in the progress of human history. Allahumma afu'anna, Allahumma khfir lana, Allahumma arhamna wa tub alayna ya tawab. اللهم اهدنا لأقوى لأهدم اللهم اهدنا للرشد يا علي عظيم 
وانصر الاسلام وعز المسلمين يا رب الله forgive our sins grant us guidance grant us your blessings and grant us the ability to see the darkness for what it is and to see light for what it is and to have the courage and the power to seek the light and to resist the darkness even if all goes astray all around us. Ya Rabbi, wa sallim wa barik ala Muhammad wa al-Ibn wa sahbihi wa khabis salah.